We pray. Oh God, be merciful to me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, our text this morning comes from the second of the seven so-called penitential psalms, Psalm 32. It is unique among the penitentials, and it is the only one that is also a beatitude. The psalmist begins, Blessed is the one, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed and penitent. There is an internal tension in the psalm between joy and sorrow, between grace and judgment. This tension is not unlike what we discovered three weeks ago in the more famous Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There we came to realize that the blessedness Jesus describes is a, is a religious joy that wells up from inside those who participate in, those who possess in part the reign of heaven, despite even because of their spiritual bankruptcy. This same participation in the things of God are described by the psalmist as an Old Testament blessedness, an Old Testament joy grounded in penitence. As good Lutherans, we ask, well, what does this mean? By seeking to complete this sentence, penitence is. Penitence is, first of all, honest in at least three ways. Penitence is honest about God's law. It begins with our catechesis in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. That is, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. This is the revealed will of God. Yet as we grow in our walk with God, we learn more and more what is his good and perfect will. Torah is the Old Testament term that captures this will, this intent, this blueprint of God for all creation. And this knowledge of God's will extends to all men and women, as Paul argues in Romans chapter 2. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts. As we confessed earlier, we have not kept this law. And the opening verses of our psalm offer three distinct terms for our inability, our failure, beginning with the word transgression. The verbal root for this word means to rebel, to break away from God. Jeremiah chapter 3, only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against Yahweh your God. The second term is sin, which is to miss the mark, to deviate from what God desires. The final term is iniquity. I suspect that we have lost some of the depth of this word. It's not part of our common speech anymore. Koch explains that in the historical books of the Bible, and in particular the Psalms, this term means more than an abstract value judgment, referring rather to an almost thing-like substance. According to one fixed expression, it is present in the perpetrator. Close quote. King Saul prays this way in 1 Samuel 14. O Yahweh, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this iniquity is in me or in Jonathan, my son. Iniquity is sin that sticks to us. Shame in the old world sense of that term. The psalmist is honest about all these failings and invites us likewise to confess. As we took up Psalm verse 5 in our lips, 
in the opening versicles of our liturgy this morning. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquities. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Did you notice? All three of those terms for sin find their way into our confession. Transgression, sin, iniquity. We speak back to God what his word has first spoken to us. Back in 2008, beginning my first Lenten season here as your pastor, I preached on the same text, on the same psalm, and related to you a cartoon that speaks about the honesty of penitence. You recall the psalmist's lament, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Well, the cartoon pictured the pastor at the back of the sanctuary greeting prisoners as they're coming out the door, and the caption reads, This is a very generous donation, Mr. Burgess. I thank you. The church thanks you. And if your unconfessed sin is still unbearable next week, feel free to donate again. (laughs) We chuckle at it. It does capture something of the plight of sinners who are either unwilling or unable to confess. But to be honest, 12 years later, in 2020, I'm more concerned with our ability, our desire, our attempts to justify our transgressions, to paint over our iniquities. We do this by pointing to the beneficial results of our actions as as if the ends justify the means. We do it by comparison. I'm not as bad a sinner as fill in the blank, much like the Pharisee in Luke 18. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You know, we we keep a scorecard of sins as if they will be weighed on a balance scale against the good things that we've done. But what does it matter? These degrees of sin. Any sin condemns absolutely. We need a savior, not a scorekeeper. So penitence is honest about God's law. It is honest about our failings to keep God's law. And finally, penitence is honest about their end, their outcome. A friend encouraged author Neil Cole to to tour the Rodin Museum while in France. Reflecting on Rodin's most famous piece, Cole writes, Rodin was a French Impressionist sculptor. Though many do not recognize his name, most are familiar with his work. He created the thinker. What you may not realize is that the thinker was really a study that was done to sit at the top of his greatest masterpiece, The Gates of Hell. For years we've been wondering what it was that the thinker was thinking about. No, he's not wondering where he left his clothes last night. What the thinker is contemplating is an eternity of judgment separated from God. Cole's friend began to describe the gates of hell, which depicts 180 image beings writhing in agony on the way to judgment. As the vision of the work gripped Cole's friend, she said, Oh, I could just stare at the gates of hell forever. It was quiet for a moment as the significance of her words became clear. Cole writes, All I could think of to say at the moment was, I hope not. Penitence is honest about God's law, it's honest about sin, and it's honest about damnation. Penitence is also audible. 
We touched on that earlier in a humorous vein, but the original text is much stronger than our translation. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Actually, groaning is the word for the bellowing of a bull or the roaring of a lion. There is an urgency, an involuntary pouring out that speaks not just for its own sake, it speaks to the other. Penitence speaks to the one it has offended. It speaks a word of confession. I have sinned against you. Two words of caution here. First, we dare not let audible become automatic. I have in mind countless Sundays and weekday chapel services as a child reciting the confessions of page 5 and page 15 by rote. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I am a poor miserable sinner, confess unto thee all my sins and iniquities, etc., etc., etc. The words tend to drone on, largely devoid of meaning because I had them memorized. And so I did not really take them to heart with every speaking. Even worse, Mays points out that because confession is the act of a sinner, it can be sinful. God is not deceived, but the sinner may deceive himself or herself. We dare not let the confession of sin become a work of our righteousness, nor an easy presumption on God's forgiveness. Both ways are deceit. When Paul quotes the opening verses of Psalm 32 in his letter to the Roman, it is not to stress the confession of sins, but to stress faith, pure faith, that brings no righteousness of its own. Rather, a righteousness that is received because the Lord does not count iniquity. The second word of caution recognizes that the time of grace will come to an end. The psalmist warns, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. One fourth century church father from Tarsus counseled that immediately after the sin is a fitting time for confession, since a sin that lingers is entrenched. Isaiah echoes our psalm, urging the penitent, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So penitence is honest, It's audible, and it is receptive. Receptive first to the verdict of guilty, which our sin requires. Generation upon generation have listened to the pastor intone the third cola of verse 5. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. But this goes deeper than the self-justifying we spoke about earlier. It goes deeper than the actual sin we've committed. It goes to the heart of who we are. The confession of original sin, it declares... I am not sin by action, but by nature. And then, to the pastor's invitation, the congregation responds with confidence, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confident that the verdict of guilty, which we deserve, has been placed on Jesus. This is the the little Easter that is every Sunday in Lent. God does what we could not do. He bore our sin to the cross. He died our death. He rose, making satisfaction for our sin. Penitence is receptive to the verdict of guilty and to the grace of absolution. 
Listen again to the triple verdict in the opening verses. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. God does not impute iniquity, but righteousness. Through his Son, you are forgiven. You have been declared and truly are righteous before him. To this declaration of grace, we respond with the joyous shouts of our closing verse. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. More literally, ringing cries of rescue. Penitence is honest. It's audible. It's receptive. And finally, as the psalm itself declares, blessed. Blessed is the one. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. One Lutheran commentator from the last century wrote, No matter what form of sin you are caught in, the pardon of it is a blessed experience. Calvin observed that all that the scripture says about blessedness and other beatitudes depends on the blessedness commended here, the free favor of God by which he reconciles us to himself. We are blessed to live as the blessed, the redeemed, the forgiven. We do not fear the flood of great waters, for we are safe in the ark of the church. We recognize the tension that exists between the necessary confession of sin and the gracious absolution we have received. God does not impute iniquity, but righteousness through his Son. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.